Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. July 30, 2021. One of the more encouraging pieces of news this week is the inauguration of direct flights between Israel and Morocco, undertaken in accordance with the joint declaration that the two nations signed on December 22 of last year. Morocco World News reported on July 26 that the arrival of two Israel and El Al flights in Marrakesh this past weekend was something of a joyous event. Bands specializing in music, alluding to folktales and legends of Morocco, turned out to fet the hundreds of tourists and visitors, and the U.S. State Department sent out a positive tweet about the event. With a Royal Air Maroc representative now stationed in Tel Aviv and direct flights between that city and Casablanca scheduled, the events of this past Sunday look like just the beginning of an era of burgeoning cultural, social, economic, and political cooperation between Israel and Morocco. There will be a particular emphasis on the pooling of intelligence and military resources in the fight against global terrorism. The Morocco World News article cites an Axios report stating that Morocco aims to upgrade what is now merely a liaison office in Tel Aviv into a full-blown embassy. The two countries, with their prosperous and educated professional, intellectual, and political castes, have much to share with and learn from each other. It is worth considering the implications of this thaw. Could the improvement of relations between Israel and other countries of the Middle East be on the horizon? It would appear the only thing missing from the coverage of this news is a bit of perspective on the historical importance of Morocco and the country's peculiar role in the fostering of trends in an embryonic form that have gone on to have an incalculable impact around the world. One hopes that the members of the Jewish diaspora who spend time in Morocco will share with others their observations and reflections and convey the benefits of the cultural transmission that the resumption of flights has made possible. It would not be the first time that a hitherto undreamt of experience in Morocco has had implications for the world. Many of the last century's literary innovators have explored and lived in Morocco and found the culture, landscape, and ambiance of the place highly conducive to their craft and to the upending and transformation of rigid forms and conventions. Even people who are aware of the importance of Morocco in the lives of literary renegades and outlaws like William S. Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, Jean Genet, and Paul Bowles may have little clue of the influence that Morocco exerted on literary giants like George Orwell and Mark Twain. All these writers have praised the beauty of the country and its role in their inner life. Their work illustrates how revolutionary styles and techniques grow out of constrictive forms. Look at Naked Lunch, a surreal stream-of-consciousness novel making use of the pastiche method as pioneered by Burroughs, was practically unthinkable during the Victorian period of literature, even in its later epoch when writers like E.M. Forster were playing around with forms and styles and forging a tentative bridge to literary modernism. None of this is without lessons for the present. The revolutionary literature that writers nurtured in the climate and culture of Morocco brought to the world was once as unimaginable as the flowering of friendly relations and close political, economic, social, and cultural ties among the nations of a region where, as another text once had it, there will be wars and rumors of wars.
We have heard over and over that the eruption of COVID-19 around the world has shown us all how unprepared we were for the advent of a highly contagious disease. But the real lesson of the past year and a half may be just how precarious are the personal liberties that obtain in the supposedly free nations of the Western world, and how abruptly and arbitrarily officials may revoke those freedoms with little or no statutory basis and without the consent of those who elected them. Nowhere is this lesson more evident than in Australia, where people are enduring restrictions on their movements and activities that make a dystopian fantasy like Orwell's 1984 seem tame. As The Economist reports in its issue of July 24, the state of Victoria has enacted not its first, second, third, or fourth, but its fifth lockdown. And the state of South Australia has issued stay-at-home orders in response to outbreaks and infections. Given that the number of people affected in the incidents in question can be measured in the hundreds or even in the tens, the consequences may seem disproportionate, to put it mildly. The Economist's figures indicate that more than half of a population of 25 million people, the population of an entire continent, are now under lockdown. In The Economist's telling, people are blaming the government of Prime Minister Scott Morrison for not having placed enough orders for vaccines and are singling out New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian for relying heavily on contact tracing and not acting fast enough to quell the Delta variant of COVID-19. But The Economist has chosen to cover a complex issue in a highly particular way and cannot be said to have produced balanced coverage. At the same time that some people are questioning the lack of a swift and broad enough COVID crackdown, mass street protests by people opposing lockdowns and the curtailment of freedoms have resulted in numerous injuries and arrests. It is telling that the left of center Economist chooses not to mention these protests in its article and prefers to stress popular dissatisfaction with an official response that, in this reading, did not go far enough. Any honest and balanced account of Australia's lockdowns ought to mention what has happened in recent days. As BBC News reported early this week, protesters bearing signs with messages like, Emergency SOS Free Australia, have turned out by the thousands in Sydney. And critics of lockdowns have also organized events in Brisbane and Melbourne. New South Wales Premier Berejiklian has said protesters should be ashamed, but, as Californians know all too well, it is easy for officials or the governor of a state to denounce people for their unwillingness to live under restrictions from which politicians themselves are often exempt. The street protests are likely to grow in number and ferocity if Australia's officials continue to subject populations to the slow-burning agony and humiliation of lockdowns. It is all too easy to forget Australia's identity as a quintessential frontier society and the role of its history in shaping the national character. Patrick White, the first Australian novelist to win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1973, captured something of this dynamic in his great 1957 novel, Voss, which is based on the exploits and adventures of Friedrich Leichhardt, who in the 1840s made history when he set out with a series of small parties to cross parts of the Australian interior on foot. White contrasts the dynamism and freedom of an explorer who heads to the great outdoors of an untamed land with the sedate but unfulfilled lives of settled citizens who sit at home drinking wine and fail even to try to realize the greatness inherent in a national character from which mobility, self-reliance, and personal liberty are inseparable. Though born in Prussia, 
Leichhardt's adventures capture something fundamental to the Australian character. No wonder so many Australians hate life under lockdown. As the identities of the last unnamed victims of the catastrophic collapse of a 136-unit condominium tower in Surfside, Florida on June 24 at last come to light, the reaction to this horrible event focuses ever more intensively on the failures of structural maintenance and upkeep that allowed the disaster to happen. An expose in the New York Times published on June 26 and since updated has outlined in detail how consultant Frank Morabito in a 2018 report analyzed extensive water damage and cracking throughout the complex that should have raised flags immediately about the unsafe conditions prevailing at Champlain Tower South and spurred the building's management to take action. The Times quotes a statement from Morobito Consulting. Among other things, our report detailed significant cracks and breaks in the concrete, which required repairs to ensure the safety of the residents and the public. Despite the passage of three years, not only had repairs and renovations not even started, but the building's residents did not appear to have an inkling that their lives were in danger if they continued to live and sleep in the building. Given the extent of the water damage and the erosion resulting from the prevalence of salt air on Florida's southern coast, the surprising thing here may not be that the building collapsed on June 24, but how it even lasted that long. As the novelist Thomas Hardy understood, so much in life is up to chance and luck. Who can say whether, if this disaster had happened sooner, it might have had consequences at the political level and changed the game for one candidate in particular? Bernie Sanders, who twice came so close to securing the Democratic nomination in 2016 and 2020, respectively, might have seized upon this catastrophe as an example of one of the things that can happen in the anarchy of an unregulated or poorly regulated market where inspections of buildings are infrequent if they happen at all, and building owners and associations are free to disregard any warnings that arise. One would like to think of the Surfside disaster as a tragic anomaly, but of course this is very far from the first time in modern American history that negligence and the bending of rules on the part of those with responsibility for ensuring public safety has led to catastrophe. Naval History Magazine's August 2021 issue features an article, Port Chicago Revisited, with an almost uncanny relevance to recent developments, even though it must have been commissioned and written weeks or months before the Surfside catastrophe. In this article, U.S. Coast Guard Commander Todd Moe rehashes the terrible events of July 17, 1944, when ammunition exploded at the Navy Weapons Station in Port Chicago outside San Francisco killing 320 people and wrecking two merchant ships. The inquiry following that disaster placed the blame on dock personnel and exempted the officers overseeing them, even though the latter were so bent on loading the maximum possible amounts of ammunition onto ships bound for the Pacific Theater of Operations for combat against the Japanese, that they knowingly disregarded federal laws about the safe and proper procedures for moving and loading ammunition. As in the Surfside disaster this summer, the people responsible cannot claim they were uninformed or that they had not received highly explicit instructions about avoiding dangers and maximizing the safety of the people in their charge. 
In October 1943, the Coast Guard had issued detailed regulations concerning the handling of bombs and shells at U.S. ports and had enshrined these regulations in law as Title 46 of the U.S. Code. But as Moe details in his article, Captain Nelson H. Goss, who had oversight of operations at Port Chicago and nearby Mare Island, wanted 10 tons of ammo loaded into every hatch every hour on the logic that the U.S. war effort against Japan would suffer if the rate were any lower, and cared little for what the law might say. Officers at the port ordered the men under their command to do all kinds of dangerous things, like rolling ammo along the dock. They tried to bribe men into upping their quotas with the promise of off-base passes, and even placed bets on which work crews would achieve the highest quotas. All this contributed to a critical mass were a flaw in the safety mechanism of a cluster bomb caused what might have been a relatively localized explosion to happen in a tinderbox amid illegally increased volumes of explosives. It is no surprise that, in the absence of a culture of safety and caution, and in the face of the brazen recklessness of the officers, 50 enlisted men who would enter history as the Port Chicago 50 refused to load ammunition at Mare Island and risk duplicating the July 17 tragedy. A military court prosecuted the enlisted men for mutiny, but the orders they were under were illegal. And Moe reminds us that under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, an order must be lawful for a subordinate to have a legal obligation to comply with it. Hence, the author of this fascinating article comes down in favor of legislation passed by the House of Representatives in December 2019 formally asking the Navy to exonerate the Port Chicago 50. It will be a further nod to the role of chance and serendipity in human affairs if such an official exoneration should come to pass around the same time that criminal proceedings against those guilty of negligence in the Surfside disaster unfold. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.